It's a question that repeats and repeats in America. Immigrants are coming in, in huge numbers. Some people just say, close the doors. Others say, no, take them in. But then those people have a debate. Once we take them in, how do we make them Americans? Like I said, it repeats and repeats. The last time it happened, they thought they had an easy answer. How do you make immigrants into Americans? Simple. Give them Shakespeare. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. As the 19th century came to a close, immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe flooded into America, many settling in New York's Lower East Side. During this time, there was a strain of progressive reformer who thought that, of all things, it was Shakespeare, his language and his characters, that held the key to teaching these immigrants English, and more importantly, making them into Americans. Meanwhile, at the same time, sometimes only blocks from where these reformers ran their settlement houses, immigrants themselves were performing and adapting Shakespeare in their own native languages. All of this is a piece of American history that hasn't been deeply explored until now. In a new book, Dr. Elizabeth Kinsley, an associate dean at Northwestern University, looks at precisely why and how Shakespeare was interwoven into the lives of three European immigrant groups in the late 19th century in New York. Her book is called Here in This Island We Arrived, Shakespeare and Belonging in Immigrant New York, and she came into the studio recently to talk to us about it. We call this podcast, We Being Strangers Here. Elizabeth Kinsley is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. So why Shakespeare? I mean, I understand all of this as far as the progressive educators are concerned, considering where Shakespeare was in white America at that time. But for Yiddish and Italian theater artists, why Shakespeare? Sure. A number of reasons. I mean, Shakespeare had kind of proliferated around the world across the 19th century. And so I think there's kind of two things going on in New York at the time. If you're looking to the progressive reformers who are staging Shakespeare for new immigrant groups in settlement houses, there's this sense of Shakespeare as a kind of Americanizing or, or even civilizing, I hate to use that word, but um, insofar as they saw it, force. And so it's tempting, I think, to see Yiddish or Italian or even German uptake of Shakespeare on their stages as a kind of gesture to assimilate into American culture. But I, I think it was more a kind of move to claim um, greatness, I guess, on a world stage and to kind of legitimize their theaters artistically more so than kind of socially or culturally. And that's what we were seeing in the 19th century, this proliferation of Shakespeare across the world and Americans appropriating Shakespeare as a national author, even though he's a Brit. Yeah, I think there was a sense of our Shakespeare, even as America is trying to kind of distinguish its own national identity against its British roots. Shakespeare becomes really imbricated into the fabric of the American public consciousness and American culture as a kind of figure of national of the great national drama. Yeah. And Shakespeare was also being translated into other language, for instance, German, I think. At sure. That time. German, the Ger German 
uh, translations, I think, were the kind of gold standard of translations around the world. But there were Russian translations. There were um, Shakespeare performances in and in India and all over the world at this and by the end of the 19th century. And how about Italy? Shakespeare was a thing for immigrant Italians. Yeah, there was a big transatlantic Shakespeare performance scene, I guess, at the time. So there were these big Italian stars who were um, big in Italy, but who also were big around the world and would would come to New York and perform in Italian. Um, And this is distinct from the Italian-American theater on the Lower East Side, but Italian stars, Tommaso Salvini and Amate Novelli, and they would come and perform Shakespeare with with English-speaking casts, and he would perform in Italian and be the main event on stage. Um, And these polyglot productions were attended by English-speaking playgoers, distinct from the kind of Lower East Side working-class immigrant audience in so-called American theaters. Um, Wait, this is so wild. So these stars would perform in Italian, and the rest mm -hmm. of the cast was speaking English. Sure. Yeah. So, what did these audiences here in in New York uh, they, get out of this? They they knew Shakespeare, and so they saw these romantic performances and kind of read into gesture and knew the story well enough to kind of appreciate these performances as really extraordinary acting. That's so wild. Well, it, it, we should say that you focus on three ethnic groups in in the book: yes. Italians, as we were saying, Jews, and Germans. And I sure. was thinking, weren't the uh, German American communities pretty well established by this time? They that were. The yeah, Jews and so, Italians started coming. Sure, and and we should specify, I guess, Yiddish speaking, the Eastern European Jews who are kind of their population was growing and growing on the Lower East Side, and yeah, the German population had assimilated, I guess, for lack of a better word, was. Um, but certainly still was seen as a distinct ethnic or even racial group, some folks would argue. Um, racial. So, so there's this hierarchy, it sounds like, mm-hmm. in, among the immigrants, uh, as there perennially <laughs> has been. And the Germans were kind of at the top. They were the oldest. And so they weren't seen as so much as a curiosity, but they were still ethnic. Were, were they considered white? And here, I guess that's what you're getting to with this racial sure. hierarchy. <laughs> um, I, I think there's... We have to distinguish between legally white by a kind of census category, right? And a sure, kind of but a big social part of, or cultural whiteness. Yes, exactly. And a big part um, of your story is about cultural whiteness right. and, and, cultural and the part belonging. that Shakespeare plays in that. Sure. And um, and I think class obviously plays a role in this as well. And so the German, the German theater was pretty mixed in terms of its audiences class-wise, was, like you say, not, not as much of a curiosity, but certainly in reviews that you read in the English language press with reviewers who are identifying as Anglo-Saxon in their kind of racial self-identification will refer to Teutonic aspects of performances in German that sometimes they'll say the Teutonic nature of this performance was at odds with its author or something like that. So still kind of marking a difference between Germanness and Anglo-Saxon whiteness or American whiteness. Well, one of the most interesting things um, to me reading your, your book is that the Yiddish and German and Italian theater troops, you write, shared theaters, and they yes. shared actors and props and sets. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, of course, that makes sense. I mean, there's limited right. resources and funds. So, yeah, it makes sense. But I think, you know, you learn in history about each of these ethnic groups separately in your textbooks and we don't tend to think of them as as mixing as right. much as they did. Right. The, but that's, that's completely wrong. 
Sure. I think that's one of the most exciting parts of entering into working on this book was you really have to go to each group's history, as you say. And then you start to say, well, gosh, if if you've been in Lower Manhattan, everything is very close together. Right. Everybody's Um, on top of each other. Everyone's on top of each other. And so, of course, these weren't demarcated histories insofar as we have we study and learn about them. And so the fact that these groups were sharing costumes, were leasing theaters from one another and sharing stages and and their audiences were kind of working together and crossing paths with one another, I think that for me was an exciting turning point in thinking about the the kind of primary arguments and stories in this book. In the sense that this kind of intergroup connection was mm-hmm. forming bonds between these groups? Forming bonds are just sensibilities, I guess. I don't want to overstate it. But I think the the way that we kind of historicize this period of time is this idea of assimilation into a kind of melting pot America, right? Where these groups would shed their ethnic kind of specificities into, I guess, what the book kind of looks at as a kind of American whiteness. And I think that there was just a lot more going on than a kind of straight line assimilation or or even cultural efforts across progressive reform agencies to, quote, Americanize immigrants. I think that there were just a lot of interactions folks were having with one another and building up sensibilities that were much more complex and much more pluralistic, I guess, than history would often have it. And Shakespeare played a part in that, in that kind of subtlety. Sure. I mean, I think Shakespeare kind of invites that kind of thinking because Shakespeare, these folks all had Shakespeare in common. And the English language press who would come and review these performances did so insofar as Shakespeare was a draw. Um, And so the fact that Shakespeare becomes sort of an analog for, I guess, or a kind of um, condensed version of Lower Manhattan itself makes it an exciting um, vehicle to kind of learn about this history. Well, let's give people an idea of some of the productions that the performers were doing. And they, as you said, they come in two different categories. One is um, immigrant performers who were putting on the plays themselves. And, and the other is when reformers would come in and put on Shakespeare for these um, immigrant audiences uh, for educational purposes or assimilation purposes. Um, So starting with just what immigrant performers would would do themselves, often they'd adapt the story uh, to feature characters and settings that were familiar to their own particular ethnic group. Sure. The Yiddish theater in particular, I think, did a lot of adaptation. their audience was eager to see Jewish life and Jewish characters on stage. And so um, the Jewish King Lear is a really... Was, ...is a great example of kind of Judaizing or making Jewish um, Shakespeare's plot and characters so that it's resonating with the Yiddish audience. And what was the Jewish King Lear like? It was set in Eastern Europe with a kind of religious father figure who decides to divest himself of his wealth to his three daughters and go to Palestine for a time. And his youngest daughter, Taibala, is 
kind of representative of a more enlightenment intellectual strain of Jewish life that is kind of at odds with a more orthodox strain of Jewishness that was really playing out on the Lower East Side between families. And then he goes off to Palestine, he comes back, he's he loses his sight, and by the end of the play, he re- reconciles with Taibala, who has become a doctor by this time and is able to cure him of his blindness by um, with kind of new cataract surgery. So, um, so there's wow. this kind of win so- <laughs> for win for science and intellectualism, um, and really it followed Shakespeare pretty closely, but did some important work among Jewish audiences on the Lower East Side at the time. Wow, so different, and yet preserving this kind of essence of of King Lear. So, was the language? Did it rhyme? Did how did it? Was it iambic pentameter? Generally, what? it's kind of a prosier version of Shakespeare. And I think you write that the Yiddish productions incorporated music. <laughs> It would have sounded very kind of Jewish to audiences and, and often um, kind of ritual melodies were featured, incorporated on stage. So, so you mean ritual in the sense of prayers, Jewish prayers? Sure. Boris Tomaszewski's Hamlet adaptation, for example, Yeshiva Bocher, learns of his father's death on stage at the outset of the production and breaks into the mourner's Kaddish, which would have been a familiar prayer to, to folks in the audience. <laughs> You say it when you're grieving a family member. And um, another kind of Jewish adaptation, or Romeo and Juliet made Jewish, uh, takes place in the synagogue. And um, so a lot of the music that's going on is uh, liturgical, is religious music. And was there popular music as well in these productions? Sure. There was music that was made popular. I mean, so um, the the music was such an important part of this that music that was written for these productions was sold as sheet music. That was a, a boom on the Lower East Side to purchase this sheet music and kind of relive the Yiddish theater in your home, I guess, around the piano. Well, that's um, cool. That's like yeah. it, the original cast album or something. Sure. <laughs> um, and um, But the religious melodies that were set um, and arranged for these productions were also included in the sheet music. So I guess the lines between popular and religious got pretty blurred, which I think is an em- emblematic, I guess, of certainly the Jewish experience um, in, in lower Manhattan at the time as folks were kind of letting go of some of their religious observances and and retaining cultural Jewishness, I guess, um, in spite of that. 
And how did the Italian productions compare? Was there as much music? Did they do as much uh, transposing of the story to different settings? There was not. No, that's a good word, transposing. Um, no, so the, the Italian performances were more so translations, still by all accounts prosier translations. And this theater was... Uh, Antonio Maioria's Italian theater was not as well established as the Yiddish theaters. The Yiddish theaters had a huge following and were just lucrative. And and the German theater was well established. The Italian theater was, as you kind of follow its history um, around 1900, was kind of moving around a lot and, and looking for stage space and constantly seeking funds to build a dedicated house. But I think the production value... Um, there just weren't as many resources to outfit the stage as thoroughly, I guess. Um, and uh, insofar as music played in, certainly there were variety shows and kind of Italian musical acts kind of um, buffering the Shakespeare performance. So after the Shakespeare play would end, the cast would come back on and kind of play a ditty and levity would ensue kind of moments after, you know, Othello's, Desdemona's death, and, you know, these kinds of things. Uh, <laughs> it was a, oh well. a mixed bag, I guess. Oh, well. <laughs> um, so then on this parallel track, you write, there were these progressives, these reform-minded New Yorkers mm-hmm. staging classical Shakespeare productions uh, for the Germans and the Italians and the, and, and the Jewish uh, audiences. How would they stage these events? Are, are they bringing troops in from outside or did they Sometimes. start their own companies? Sure. A little bit of both. There was a a kind of a a lot of programming in these Lower East Side reform agencies. So the way Shakespeare kind of made its way into this programming ranged from um, recitals where a single person would stand and recite Shakespeare to a room full of of people. Um, That was very popular at the People's Institute is one of the two um, reform agencies that I track in, in the first chapter of the book. Um, there were Shakespeare clubs where folks would read Shakespeare together. There were Shakespeare performances. So the People's Institute brought in Ben Greet and his company. I do much wonder that one man, seeing how much another man is a fool when he dedicates his behavior to love, will, after he has laughed at such shallow follies in others, become the argument of his own scorn. By falling in love. I, I guess I have to ask why Shakespeare again, because uh, Charlie's Aunt was popular at that time, that play, or David Blasco's plays, or even minst- minstrel shows. What was <laughs> uh, it about Shakespeare? I think people saw opportunity to provide moral instruction through Shakespeare's plays, to issue kind of an idealized language and idealized settings. You mean a language in terms of elocution? Sure. And I, that was where I was headed. I, I, the Shakespeare had also made its way into the school curricula um, in the 19th century and in elocution manuals. And so learning how to speak English well involved uptake of Shakespeare. Um, so Shakespeare becomes a, a really common tool for imbricating immigrant groups into an American upwardly mobile consciousness. It's so interesting that these two things are going on parallel at the same time. It is. I mean, here you have these these uh, immigrants are performing Shakespeare in their own language. Mm-hmm. What, what did the reformers think of that? And you write about a woman called Alice Hertz. Sure. I, she 
came to the Educational Alliance and started a children's theater. She has a few choice words for Shakespeare performed in other languages. I think she preferred to see it in English and saw it as a way to really draw young people out of what she perceived as really wretched conditions and provide permanent force, I think she calls it, into the minds of children to make them good citizens. That's how This is how she saw it. I think that idea of what Shakespeare is doing for these groups is totally at odds with what these groups themselves are doing with Shakespeare. And so I think a lot of what I'm interested in in the book is the, the ideological work that reformers like Alice Minnie Hertz or journalists like John Corbin, who's going down to see Shakespeare performed on the Lower East Side. Their sort of ideologies about Shakespeare at odds with the, the actualities of, of immigrant groups not assimilating via Shakespeare or to Shakespeare, but rather assimilating Shakespeare to their own cultures. Well, sure. I mean, she's a person of her own time. And yep. Shakespeare's plays, they're about royalty and noblemen yep. and noble it's, women. Yep. Did, was that something that she or, or these reformers believed the immigrants and with all all their biases against immigrants or sure. uh, yeah, that she, they could grasp saw, this role? Yeah, absolutely. Thing. I mean, she saw these worlds as superior to the worlds that, in her case, she was working with the children's theater that these children were enduring. And she saw the Shakespearean characters, I think, as superior to the children and and to the even adults in the children's lives. And so she saw this as an opportunity for children to really inhabit a space that would elevate them. I guess she does come across as kind of a snob, but you, she does come she across can't as help, a snob. But, but I, I, yeah, <laughs> right. I think she was probably well-meaning, right? Um, and probably had wonderful relationships with the the children she was working with, and was trained as a social worker, and um, and really did. Um, her pedagogical intentions were probably wonderful, but if you go back to her work, um, it really does come across as quite paternalistic insofar as the way she held Shakespeare and, and the characters kind of above the, the populations she was working with. And this is an age when the photographer Jacob Rees published his landmark mm-hmm. uh, book, How the Other Half Lives, and right. and that portrayed just uh, beautifully and poignantly the desperate conditions of immigrants right. on the Lower East Side, and it sparked reforms but even he spoke about his subjects as these inferior kind of grimy people who needed oh, to sure. be I think, to be elevated. Yep. yep. I think that book is if you look at, if you start to flip through the photographs that are so prominent across his work, they were very important as you say in exposing this kind of municipal crisis, but also really invite a kind of bourgeois upper, you know, privileged viewer to to objectify or kind of gaze at this these populations on the Lower East Side, and I've got like a page marked in here with a choice, some choice words from Reese, kind of talking about crossing the Bowery into Jewtown. Um, so, and, and this is also, I think, a useful way to, to get into the way that folks were thinking about and seeing race at the time. He says, no need of asking where where we are. The jargon of the street, the signs of the sidewalk, the manner and dress of the people, their unmistakable physiognomy betray the race at every step. And at one point he talks about the, the Jews and Italians who will carry their slum with them um, wherever they go. So these kinds of ideas about slumminess even um, attaching to the populations that these reformers were working with. Yeah, um, and it sounds so repugnant to our modern it does, ears. It does. But, and this was one of the good guys. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so it, it's really more about how the language that they're using and that's circulating widely starts to kind of cement associations in 
the public's mind about these populations as, and with respect to Shakespeare, I guess, in, in the case of this book. And what about the mainstream, the rest of the press? How, how would reviewers cover these immigrants staged? Sure, they were, and what kind of biases did they? Reveal? They were often snarkier, right? So, um, I think their their role as critics would often kind of flatten the complexities that the reformers were working under. Um, and and as critics, they were really telling news to their most often Anglo-identified, um, if not Anglo, in origin audiences. So, how would they be snarky? Sure, they would. Um, they would talk about the Yiddish language as kind of a Polish Hebrew chowder. They would say things like the sound of it is a sacrilege of Shakespeare. And when Jacob Adler would perform Shylock, they would even critics who were complimentary of his performance would say, well, it's clearly not the Jew that Shakespeare drew. This isn't the intention of the great poet, but it's a good performance for all of that. They would talk about Antonio Maori's gestures, you know, with a wink and a nod and the gestures that are so common of actors of his race. There was just a general sense of this is our drama um, and we are reviewing this drama in an Italian theater or German theater or Yiddish speaking theater. And an an interesting uh, tension between a genuine effort to recognize these performance traditions and these stages and and troops, but always seemingly with a bit of an undercutting sense of smugness, at least. Well, these these reviews that that you unearth are so rich, um, both in scorn and bias, but also in this yeah. kind of feeling that you get a feeling that these theater reviewers think they're doing something noble. Oh, sure. Yeah, I think they. Well, they're doing something noble on a number of fronts. I think what's going on in the uptown theaters is that these critics are finding that the, quote, good theater, um, like Shakespeare, is kind of waning in the the uptown theater scene and that that are are drawn to the fact that Shakespeare is being performed in these lower theaters in lower Manhattan. But I I do think they also think, yeah, we're going to recognize these communities and write about their Shakespeare plays and tell everyone what's going on down here. And there is this kind of self-satisfaction about it. Well, something that we've touched on, this issue of race, or what what constitutes white America and white New York, I'd like to dig into a little bit more, because reading the reviews from the press, you do get more of a sense of the pecking order as far as immigrants were concerned. And you quote one critic making a distinction in in a review between the Anglo-Saxons, the Germans, and the Jews. And as you pointed out earlier in our conversation, this alludes to the nuances of whiteness in the United States at the turn of the 20th century, where Anglo-Saxons, Germans, Jews, and Italians were perceived as different and differently classed races. And it's so resonant thinking about this. It's so resonant with what's going on today in our own debate over immigration. You know, who's considered uh, qualified to be an American? Who's considered white in America? Who gets to take on that privilege? And, you know, we toss around these words about immigration today, but I think your book really puts a fine point on it, how fluid all of those categories were in the past and still are. Sure. I think it's always fluid, right? And that's why looking at something like Shakespeare and how such a weighty cultural figure, cultural idea, cultural space, right? Shakespeare really is all of those things. <laughs> how that 
becomes a place where people develop these senses of belonging or some groups will deploy conscious or unconscious efforts to exclude folks from that cultural space. Yeah, and, and I'm so, thinking of the of the many allusions in, say, the press to the swarthy Italian Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or, or the, the Browns, I guess one of them was, one of these reviews talks about how Maori's Hamlet was meat to the dark brown, you know, audience around who was surrounding the the reviewer. So there was a kind of perception of swarthiness or darkness, right? Even as the Italians, you know, would identify again, like on a census as as white and could claim citizenship and so far, you know. But there's this perception that this group is not quite white. Um as more European groups are coming into New York and thinking about European races, I guess, is overlapping between a kind of increasing differentiation, uh, demarcation, I guess, of the color line in the wake of emancipation. Um, And so there's this kind of interesting evolving way of seeing race at that time. And you quote Jacob Reese on the different stages of whiteness. he says, he writes, the Italian comes in at the bottom and in the generation that came over the sea, he stays there. Unlike the German who begins learning English, the day he lands as a matter of duty. Or the Polish Jew who takes it up as soon as he's able as an investment. The Italian learns slowly, if at all. Right. Oh, it's kind of chilling to read, yeah. read, the, it's hard read, to read. those words. Yeah. But yeah. so it's, it's as if learning English is the road to whiteness. And, sure. And that's where Shakespeare comes in among these progressive reformers. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And getting on board with the national author um, who by this time has really become a mark of intellectualism or more so than a kind of popular figure earlier in the 19th century. Shakespeare was really much more part of the popular zeitgeist, I guess, and by the late 19th century is more associated with upwardly mobile intellectual space, um, so that it does sort of seem an apt tool for um, assimilating groups that that were perceived as, if not non-white, then differently white. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's been really interesting talking with you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's It's been great to chat. Dr. Elizabeth Kinsley is Associate Dean and Director of Undergraduate Admissions at Northwestern University. She is also the author of Here in This Island We Arrived, Shakespeare and Belonging in Immigrant New York, which was published in 2019 by Penn State University Press. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, We Being Strangers Here, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the Associate Producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Kayla Stoner and Kristen Samuelson of Northwestern University's Global Marketing and Communications Department. There's something I'd like to ask you to do. It's something I ask on every episode of Shakespeare Unlimited, and I'd like to explain why. A lot of the podcasting platforms decide which podcasts to recommend by looking at the ones that have the most reviews and ratings by their listeners. So, if you like Shakespeare Unlimited and you'd like to tell others how good it is, please rate and review the podcast. I am really grateful to you for your help. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library, home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, The Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. 
You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself visiting Washington, D.C., we hope you'll visit us on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face to face with one of our first folios, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you here. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.